All right, today's another Die Healthier First. Uh, we're speaking with Jim Reese, who's an associate professor of English and director of the Great Plains Writing Tour at Mount Marty College. Uh, his poetry and prose have been widely published, and he has performed readings at venues throughout the country, including the Library of Congress and San Quentin Prison. His awards include, include first place in the 2018 Allen Ginsberg Poetry Awards, a 2018 Distinguished Achievement Award from Mount Marty College, and a Distinguished Public Service Award in recognition of his exemplary dedication and contribution to the education department at the federal prison camp in Yankton, South Dakota. Uh, his books include three works of poetry, These Trespasses, Ghost on Third, and Really Happy. Uh, you have another one forthcoming in 2020, and he's just published his first book of prose, Bone Chalk. Jim, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me, guys. Why don't you, uh, before we get going, just a quick little background in how you came to be uh, a writer. I feel like that's kind of a dream of a lot of people, but not a lot of people follow through with that. Well, I was an aspiring musician when I was in high school and college, and I was in, by the time I made it to college, I was in some pretty good bands, but I was a pretty mediocre rhythm guitar player, and I um, couldn't sing, so I sang off-key, but I could write, I thought, some pretty decent songs, and um, we had been recording a couple of records and or tapes back then. That was right when CDs came out. So um, I enjoyed that. I think it was pretty cool to see. Um, one of the best feelings, I think, was seeing somebody out in the audience sing a song back to you that you had written. And I thought that was a neat feeling. And I was also in a band with five other guys, and we all had pretty pretty big egos, and we wanted to be rock stars. And um, I realized I was never most likely going to make it as, as a musician, but I, I could sure keep trying to write and show up for that. Um, and that's that's really where it got started, and I started taking things a lot more seriously in college. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so you, you got your PhD at Lincoln, is that correct? Yep. Okay. Um, and you worked under Ted Kuzer, is that correct? Yeah, we were, um, you know, it was pretty interesting a couple things in my career uh, so far that have happened, um, and that was one of them, just to, in 2005, I think it was, 2004, um, Ted Kuzer became the United States Poet Laureate, and then right after that won the Pulitzer Prize. So we were on campus, and we were watching this all unfold. There were guys, there was a guy who had a Mercedes that he spray-painted, and um and put Kuzer for Pope on the side of it. Um, that's right when uh, the world was looking for a new Pope as well. And um, so there was a lot of noise about him and his, his um, well, him becoming famous. And um, that was pretty, pretty interesting to see. Um, and what was neat about it, I think, was just watching him. He kind of put his head down and just went to work. His main job was to promote poetry in the country and um, so I think within, I would have to double check with him, but I think within a two-year period, he did over 270 readings throughout the country. And his main goal was to just promote accessible poetry, poetry that wasn't a math problem, poetry that you didn't have to sit and try to figure out, poetry for that guy in the back of the room whose wife drug him to a reading. Um, he was trying to relate to those kinds of people, and it was really neat to see him promote that because... Um, Soon after then, or as this was happening, he also started his column that's in the newspapers, American Life and Poetry, and um, and that's that's his goal for that as well. And I think that gets over 
4 million readers um, every time, you know, when it, each time it's released. So that's a really good thing for poetry. It was a good thing to see. And um, he just kept working and it really rubbed off on a lot of us. Um, this field is pretty competitive like so many. And um, you have to, you know, get published a lot and um, secure some book contracts to secure a job. And um, so he was a good role model in that, that essence as well. Awesome. So we have a lot of guests on who are really, really good in their fields, but their fields are relatively unknown to people outside of the fields. Uh, like we had uh, Graham Zimmerman on, who is a world-class uh, professional climber, and most people don't know about him. We had Dakota Jones on, who's probably one of the top you know, 20 yeah. ultra-marathon runners in the world, and most people don't know anything about that. So maybe to put in perspective uh, for maybe a, a team sport setting, how high up is a U.S. poet laureate in the compared to maybe like a is he, would he be like the LeBron James of poetry basically? Well, yeah, I mean that's the best that's the highest honor I think you can get in poetry uh, in that field, and and then he won the Pulitzer Prize too. So I think if there's a few a handful of awards, writing awards in the country that you can receive, those are two two of the highest ones. And it was neat to see what Kuzer was doing um, as well. He had. The year before that, in 2004, I believe, um, his book, Local Wonders, came out, and that was a book of prose. And that was really inspirational to me. I'll tell you a quick side note. So in the midst of all this, he would also um, come to my class if I could find a day he was in town and uh, talk to my students. And he would also come to the graduate student reading series anytime he could. Um, so one time I, it was my turn to read. And, uh, so I was presenting and right after the presentation, he walked up to me and he said, Hey Jim, that last poem you read was an entire Willa Cather novel. And then he kind of smiled and walked away. And I thought, what, what the heck is he talking about? And, um, you know, and I talked to him afterwards, uh, a little while afterwards and he kept telling me, Hey, your poems are really narrative. There's a whole story here. You know, or there's a, in that instance, there's a whole novel here. So I kept thinking about that. And you get so wrapped up in graduate school, you get your field and your focus and you really study that. And then all of a sudden you get a job and all these other things start happening. And, um, and I kept, and I really loved capturing small town voices, the people um, that I would meet. And I started writing these essays. And that's really, 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 really what I like doing. A lot more than poetry, to be honest, um, because it gave me time to slow down and tell the story. But um, also, you know, to write prose, it's a lot. It takes a lot more time. Um, there's so many more rounds of revision, um, and it's just a lot more work. So I was slowly doing that as I was starting my new job, and I was getting these essays published because I didn't have to focus strictly on poetry like I like I had been doing in grad school. Um, I had I had published my first book. And um, that helped me secure a job. And then um, I started revisiting some of these ideas for these longer essays and things like that. And, and, um, and then all of a sudden I wind up in South Dakota in my job. And, and after a year, somebody walks up to my office and um, they want to start a new program with the National Endowment for the Arts. And the, it's an interagency initiative with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And because of my publishing experience and um, knowledge of running small presses and publishing journals, because I'd been doing that on the side too, 
um, I qualified for that. And that was all just happenstance, you know, being in the right time or right place in the right time. I, you know, you hear that a lot of times, but um, yeah, I would have never probably had the opportunities that I had if I hadn't wound up here and, and stuff like that. And so a lot of the, the reviewers of your books say your prose has a kind of a poetic feel um, to it. And someone who reads a lot can definitely see that. You know, there's some books where the prose is just so dry and bulky it takes forever to read. Um, and it's just really dry. I read your book in one day um, really? because it flowed so well. Um, and, oh, nice. you know, you've got a lot of funny stuff in your book, but the two two parts of the book that I really enjoyed the most um, was the long middle section on your reflection with um, crime and working in the present camps and your personal experience with crime and how that's kind of influenced your outlook on on crime. And then the, the second one was um, the stuff about your grandparents and uh, developing uh, dementia, I believe, what it was. Um, and that really stuck with me as well um, because everybody's had a story of their grandparents and kind of seeing their, their end of their life and the kind of emotions that that kind of brings forward. Uh, but I want to focus mostly on, on the prison stuff here today. Um, you said it was kind of by happenstance. Um, you had some, I think the most interesting part of that was uh, maybe your trip to San Quentin and how um, intense of an experience that is and way different than the federal prison camp here in town. So I live about a half a block away. I can literally see the prison camp right now out of my office window. Uh, and, and he says in his book, there's no walls. They can kind of go across the street to the gym and stuff as they please. Um, and to some people, it scares them a lot. But, you know, really, there's been like zero crime in this neighborhood since I've moved here. I think that's kind of a deterrent having a prison camp right there, even though it's it's a completely <laughs> different kind of crime, really. But can you maybe talk a little bit about how um, going into a maximum security prison um, and then your experience firsthand with prisoners that maybe, you know, when we hear the slogans, we just got to be tough on crime. That's not really the whole picture that we're seeing. Yeah, um, it's a it's a hard to summarize what I've been doing in 12 years, but I definitely can touch on that. So I came into this. I should just state this if, for the listeners that haven't read the book yet. Um, so when this job offer became available, um, what was running through my head was what happened in high school. And I write about that, which is um, my friend in high school was raped and murdered by a guy who um, I went to school with, too, who used to help me with my math homework in junior high. So that was really hard to wrap my head around. Um, and I think for all of us that went to school, I mean, it really, you know, it was a horrible thing. It was very premeditated, very heinous. The person that did this is still in prison. And so I kind of assumed that all criminals were kind of like him. Um, and I didn't have any knowledge of our criminal justice system besides that. And so when I started, I worked at the federal prison for the first year and and there were no guards in the classroom with me or correctional officers, how they were referred to. Um, I called them guards at first and I quickly was told that's not um, how you address them. And um, I worked in an education building. So it's just like a school. And um, so we help men um, with their education. And some statistics I think listeners should know right away. And what took me a few years to figure out is um, you know, first of all, one out of every three people of working age in the United States has some sort of criminal record. 
Okay, that's a stat that came out from the White House a couple of years ago. And that means so one out of three of us here on this podcast has a criminal record. So <laughs> Who um, is it? Which one is it? <laughs> so we know that crime affects lots of families and and that was something to really understand and fifty percent of federal inmates are um in prison for drug-related crimes. People in federal prison that commit heinous crimes is right about 3% or under. So that's something to understand. We have 5% of the world's population, but we house 25% of the world's prisoners in the United States. Another really important statistic to understand um, and this would happen to me a lot the first few years is people would come up to me and say, why should I care about prisoners? Be teaching them something. Well, if you lock a person up um, and you can teach them a trade and that's all fine and good. But what you really have to do, and which is the focus of my class, is you have to teach somebody to come to terms with the emotional instabilities that brought them to prison. Because if you don't, you're just going to send an angry person right back out into society. So helping men and women, later on I started working in the state prisons, um, write and come to terms with their emotions and, and, and really reaching inside that cave inside of them and telling some truths in their writing, help them become better people, helps them become better people, and in term, terms helps their family, helps other people. And another important statistic um, and it's a was a five-year bipartisan study is every dollar spent on prison education equates to five dollar taxpayer savings so it doesn't matter what you think if you really only care about your tax dollar then you should care about educating people in prison because it's the only thing that is proven to help or one of the only things that's proven to help that much um, so that's really a focus so I have some of those statistics, obviously, in that essay. Um, the second year I was at the federal prison, um, because this is part of the National Endowment for the Arts, they, um, the first time they asked us to go to San Quentin, and then we went a few more times in the um, years later. And so the first time we went to San Quentin, just um, the reason was so we could see how their arts and writing programs were working because that's a really, really unique place. So San Quentin's 432 acres. It's about half the size of this small city that we're in right now. There's roughly, we, you know, when I was there, or the times I'd been there, you know, I think there was like five to 6,000 people. And so we would go in for a weekend each time we went and watch their uh, painting classes, their leather craft classes, their music classes, their theater classes, their writing classes. We would give some of our own presentations. We were all artists, about a handful of us from throughout the country that would go there. And then they gave us tours uh, pretty much anywhere we wanted to go, which was really interesting to see. So, um, you know, you go in, I suppose I did what a lot of people uh, did before I went. I just Googled San Quentin and started watching all these um, very sensational videos and um, scared myself and um, it's a it's a unique place and they're actually now you know I mean I did that at the beginning when I started I haven't been back there probably for six years um, or seven years actually so I would really like to go back again um, it's just neat to see you know San Quentin has their own education program now they have their own college 
um, the prison university project and and it's if we can do that throughout the country um, start some of these you know continue to have these programs um, it'll just be such a benefit for everybody you know what's what struck me is you know you said we need to educate these people um, if they want to see change not just lock them up and magically think something's going to change which is similar to um, in my opinion how, how Scott and I view you know training clients if we don't you know if somebody's squat mechanics look like crap and they get hurt and we just wait till they feel better and then they do it again and get hurt that's not actually fixing the underlying issue which is you squat like crap right it's not you know usually it's not bad luck that you continually hurt the same thing on your body there's probably something underlying going on um, so i think that's you can look at it from that perspective and it makes a lot of sense that way yeah writing i think is so much like exercise and that's why i love that i'm on your guys's podcast i love listening to it you have such interesting guests and i think that's a real key thing to being a writer um or just being a human being staying interested in just so many different activities but writing is so much like exercise um for me and I think you got, and I know Danny, I know you write, Scott, I'm sure writes uh, as well. And you guys do this podcast. So that's a very creative venture. You know, if I don't extra, or if I don't write for a couple of days, I get really agitated, just like a runner would, or somebody who can't exercise, you know, it, it really affects my mental and my mental health. And so I have to constantly do that. And that expressive writing, um, really really does help um we can we can look at people like brendan bouchard who is training you know who's the leadership trainer for oprah and all these famous people i mean there's just so many different people we can list and people on your podcast that you've had um, that are inspirational and, and writing is a key component to that so i'm very interested in expressive writing and how it helps people in prison and outside of prison so i i use those same techniques in my college classrooms as well We'll touch on uh, the research you're thinking of doing this summer and relating to that. But uh, before we finish up here, I just wanted to read uh, a couple of things from your book um, that really struck me as kind of an overall theme. And I don't know if this was intentional and you can tell me other words afterwise, but I want to read this um, from one of your essays it says, it's over 20 years later and I'm in my daughter's room. I've learned to think for myself, to do unto others as I'd want done to me. I'll never forget that courtroom scene, seeing that man with his stained and ripped t-shirt. As I tuck her into bed tonight, I wonder, will monsters with canes and bloody shirts interrupt what should be precious thoughts of this world we live in? I cannot follow her everywhere. I can only teach her what to look out for, to repeat over and over, never to trust strangers. Now, what I find so um, so great about that is your book is really this this whole dichotomy of trusting and not trusting people because you say in other parts of the book that you say hello to the prisoners or when you went back home to Omaha after your your time at Wayne State College you held the door open for someone and said hey how's it going he said what's your problem right okay. so it's this weird interrelationship of we can't trust strangers but at the same time you know life is almost meaningless if we don't trust strangers I don't know that's kind of what I got from a lot of your writing in here that and it's kind of like life, right? There's no black or white. It's this weird mesh of gray area where uh, we're all walking around confused and don't really know what we're doing until uh, probably we're on our deathbed, then we figure it out, and it's too late by that point anyways. Yeah, I think that was such a, for a few years, or when I when I was trying to write that crime essay that, that's in this book, the centerpiece essay, which a lot of critics are talking about now, 
was really a whole manuscript. It was about 175 pages. And one of the publishers that was interested in the book asked me if I had any more material. And I said, well, yeah, actually, I do have this uh, book that I'm working on as well. So I took that whole manuscript and I cut it um, because I kept trying to figure out an answer. I thought if I wrote long enough for year after year, I would come up with some definitive answers. This is how you fix crime. And, and I couldn't. Um, so then I, then I had um, a lot of people helping me with manuscript, um, giving me some constructive criticism. And Kent Meyer, who's a really f um, famous South Dakota writer, novelist, said, why don't you write about crime and how it's affected you? You know, so that particular scene that you just read um, is when I was in high school and we were in court and we were bailing out a friend of mine um, who, you know, got into trouble. And I, I felt ashamed because I was there bailing him out and I was in high school and I wasn't thinking for myself and I was just going along with what everybody else was going along with. And uh, once you're in a courtroom, you can't leave. So you have to see all these other people and what they're accused of. So uh, that particular reflection is of a man who was accused of a pretty heinous crime and um, he had blood all over his shirt and was accused of yeah, some pretty nasty stuff. And, and it was scary and it made us all sick. And, and um, so, you know, you start thinking about all those flashbacks of how crime has affected you or your family um, or something you've seen or heard. And it's, there is, you know, you have all kinds of different emotions in the book. Then I also noticed too, there's so many people, like I'm an insider and an outsider um, in so many of the stories, so many of the essays. Um, they, a lot of the essays are of two minds and there are no definitive answers. And I think that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm glad as a writer, I'm glad as a human being, I'm figuring that out. And I'm going to still keep trying to do the best I can and show up and and hope other people can do the same thing instead of just, you know, throwing up walls, which I think happens so often, too. Well, I think it's very uh, commendable and awesome that crime has affected you personally so much. And instead of developing this uh, cynical outlook on it, you've dove straight into the opposite end and tried to help this, not run away from it and form these walls and opinions and box yourself off, which would be a perfectly justified thing to do, which is probably what most people do when they, you know, come into that firsthand experience with crime, which is cool. Um, so the part I want, I want to read here, um, talking about uh, a ride on a night home with one of your friends. Uh, and he said, I wake up some nights in a panic that we're on that same stretch of interstate. I think quite possibly we would have intentionally driven that car off the road if I would have gone along with it. Darkness wasn't alien. We didn't have to travel to find it. That night, it was sitting right next to me, driving the car. And I think that's really profound on your overall theme of the book is that, you know, criminals, most criminals are not born terrible people, right? Yes, there are a few, right? Probably like Ted Bundy or some of the other, you know, really serious serial killers. Um, but most people are just either one bad choice away from being a criminal um, or, or um, possibly, you know, a, a mental, you know, depression issue or something like that. You know, there's there's no definitive, you know, that's a bad person, a bad choice, which I think is very important to consider. And I want to read this last little part um, at the end of one of your essays. said, I've been instructed never to get close to an inmate, but I'm your teacher here, and I'm afraid that's just not possible. Tonight, like most nights, I carry you home. 
which really resonated with me. Um, and, and Scott probably feels the same way that we actually give a shit about the people that we're working with. And it really shows uh, with your writing. Like we're not there to just earn money and close the doors. Like we actually want to elicit change. Like I said before, my goal for most of my clients is to get you in and out in three months and you don't need me anymore. I want you to take ownership of your yourself. Scott, when he opens up his clinic, right, it's a bad business model because he wants to get his people healthy and never see them again. Uh, but that's really what we're, we're kind of after. And I feel like you really feel that same way with the people you work with, whether it's your students or the inmates uh, or your children or friends or anything like that. Yeah, I think, and I talk about this a lot in class, you know, it's everybody, you know, we talk about hot button issues in my critical writing classes and happiness is one of them. And, and, you know, you can chase paper for a while and, and that's all fine and good. And then all of a sudden I think people realize, well, once you can pay the bills and, and you have some money, then what's really going to make you feel whole. And for me, it's always been helping other people. And I think I've been like that since I was a kid. Thank God. Um, you know, I had some great parents, have some great parents. And, um, you know, I, I mean, that really is what gets me up in the morning. I like helping other people. I like learning from other people. And I remember, you know, the, when that first year when I started at the federal prison camp, the supervisor of education said, you're going to do just fine here if you can remember one thing. And she said to me, just remember, any of us could have wound up in a place like this after a few misdirected decisions. And that's the truth. Look, you know, we've all broke the law. We're all criminals. Uh, maybe not bad criminals, but we've done something wrong. Listeners know that. We know that. Um, we are human beings. We make mistakes. That doesn't mean people don't deserve a second, third, fourth chance at... Um, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's really what I've, what I like about being a teacher and what I like about being a human being. Well, and, um, I've been in school probably close to almost 20 years, I want to say. And some of my greatest teachers I've ever had weren't the ones that knew the most or had a PhD. They were the ones that got me interested in going out and learning more Maybe some of the teachers were ones that made me upset, so then I spent the rest of the night researching what they said, what I think was wrong. Well, to me, they're a good teacher. They made me take initiative to continue my education and research and learning. And I think at times we think a good teacher is someone that knows a lot, or a good personal trainer is one that can lift a lot. I think a good personal trainer, a good teacher, a good coach is someone that can make their client or their student go out and do more. And like you said, with prison teaching, I mean, the ultimate goal here is to educate that person so they can go out and continue learning, doing more for themselves. You, your goal, I'm going to assume, is not just give them a bunch of information, a bunch of facts. Like that, I don't think is going to do them as much good as giving them initiative to go out and get better yeah exactly that's where and you know i when i was coming up for a title of this book um that's where bone chalk comes from uh, i love i you know i highly admired hunter s thompson um until he killed himself but i also really really like um charles bowden and um he was um he unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but uh, uh, Chuck was doing a lot of work on the war on drugs in Juarez and 
Um, his last book was Murder City, Ciudad Juarez, and the Global Economy's New Killing Field. And he really taught me a lot about just immersing yourself in the story. He was actually Hunter S. Thompson, a ghostwriter for one of Hunter S. Thompson's books. And um, he just taught me a lot of things about, you know, how to interview people and and what to look for in stories and really immersing yourself in the story. And he was such a leader and such a good teacher. And we have those people in our lives. And Bone Chalk comes from a poem by Don Welch. And one of the stanzas says, how many souls make up the inexhaustible winds? How many of them taught with their bones chalk? And that to me is, you know, the people that I write about. You know, I've learned so much from the farmers, the ranchers, the people in my family. They've all taught me something. And that's just by following them around and immersing myself in their lives and learning from them. And I think that's really important. And it's, and it's very rewarding, too. Awesome. So, Jim, you'll be doing some research along with me um, this summer looking at um, comparing writing and exercise and things like that. Uh, so we will plan to have you back on uh, maybe in August to kind of recap and see uh, see what you learn. But in the meantime, where can people go, uh, social media to follow you? Or where can they find your book? Things like that. Um, you can find Jim Reese on Facebook and on Twitter. I think I'm at Really Happy Jim on Twitter and also you can buy the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and or and or just go to jimreese.org and and there's some links there that'll take you to um, where you need to go. Awesome, Jim. Thank you for being on today. All right, thanks, guys.